from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up, three down and one to go in the Democratic National Committee's virtual convention. It wraps up tonight with Joe Biden giving his acceptance speech. Last night, Biden's running mate Kamala Harris, along with former presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, spoke. But once again, not much, if any, discussion of the policies the Democratic Party will pursue if given the reins of power. But there was a clear focus, or should I say target, in their messaging. Washington Times reporter Jennifer Harper joins us with a look at last night's DNC convention in just a moment. Also, with Kamala Harris officially the VP nominee of the Democratic Party, we're going to take a closer look at her public record, which reveals a lot about where a Biden-Harris administration will take America. And yesterday we had an in-depth program on universal mail-in balloting and the dangers of trying to shift this fall's election to a mail-in system. While the post office is certainly a component of that, the bigger challenge lies with the states. But that is not stopping House Speaker Nancy Pelosi from using the post office as a red herring in the debate over election integrity. The House has scheduled a hearing on Monday entitled Protecting the Timely Delivery of Mail, Medicine, and Mail-in Ballots. The Senate is scheduled to have a hearing uh, tomorrow on post office reform measures. Tennessee Congressman Dr. Mark Green, a member of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, which will be hosting Monday's hearing, joins us with more later here on Washington Watch. You know, we're hearing a lot, in fact, nonstop messages about racial division. The Democratic Party platform, which uh, I'm in the process of reading, is filled with language about racial division and the need for government to end systemic racism. But can government end racism, and is it really systemic? My good friend Bishop Harry Jackson is here with a new book about healing the racial divide in America, a manifesto, Christian America's Contract, with minorities. We'll talk about it later with uh, Bishop Harry Jackson. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parlor, it is at T. Perkins. And uh, let me remind you, sign up now. Mark your calendars. Values Voter Summit is going virtual, just like the conventions. September the 22nd through the 25th. You can register now. Go to TonyPerkins.com and follow the links over for this year's Values Voter Summit America. Pray, vote, stand. That's our theme for this year. Find out more. Again, go to TonyPerkins.com. All right, after tonight, the DNC convention will be wrapped up. So what new information do we know about what the Democratic Party wants to do in terms of where they want to take America? Well, frankly, not much. In fact, um, New York Post columnist Michael Goodwin said that uh, really – if there was a theme running through last night's gathering, uh, it uh, would be basically, this is quoting him, Donald Trump bad, got that, really, really bad. But then when you go on, what are Democrats promising? What are they proposing to the American people? Well, it's just not there. Here's a couple of clips from uh, last night's uh, virtual gathering. First, Kamala Harris, who is officially now the vice presidential nominee for the Democratic Party. Donald Trump's failure of leadership has cost lives and livelihoods. If you're a parent struggling with your child's remote learning, or you're a teacher struggling on the other side of that screen, you know what we're doing right now is not working. 
it was like uh, WWF uh, tag team because next came uh, former President Barack Obama. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work, no interest in finding common ground, no interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends. No interest in treating the presidency as anything but one more reality show that he can use to get the attention he craves. Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. And the consequences of that failure are severe. 170,000 Americans dead. Millions of jobs gone, while those at the top take in more than ever. I won't take the time to dissect that comment. I'll move to a, a voice from the past. It's Trump's us versus them America against Joe Biden's America, where we all live and work together. It's a clear choice. The future of our country is riding on it. Of course, that was uh, former President Bill Clinton uh, jumping into the fray last night as well. But uh, joining us now to talk about uh, where the convention has uh, come to this point and where it may go tonight is Jennifer Harper, Washington Times reporter and column writer of Inside the Beltway. Jennifer, welcome to Washington Watch. It's good to be with you, Tony. So, Jennifer, am I on target that the, the, the focal point has been less about policies and more personality in terms of uh, heaping uh, condemnation upon uh, Donald Trump? Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, certainly the Democratic Party has lost their prime directive here, which is to uh, reach voters, to inspire them, to get them excited about getting to the polls. And certainly, if you look at some of the reviews of this event, all three nights so far have been described as an infomercial, as a droning, uh, repetitive type of prepackaged material. And, of course, they're missing their live audiences, and, and that certainly plays a factor. But as you mentioned before, uh, a lot of the best Democratic messages, such as being a party of the people or being there for you, all that visceral type of things that Democrats have talked about for years, was definitely missing. And also, Tony, more importantly, the actual ratings of the of the event itself in terms of uh, how many people are watching this have gone down. They dropped by 48 percent. Uh, after the first night and 27 percent uh, after the second night. This is according to Nielsen. And uh, certainly they're getting a lot of play on all of the cable uh, and broadcast news uh, networks. So um, it looks kind of like, uh, you're right, the Democrats are sort of losing their focus here. Jennifer, let me ask you a question, because I know some have said, look, they're doing nothing to appeal to the undecided voters. This is, uh, you know, they're, it's basically red meat for their base attacking Donald Trump. But, you know, I, think, I actually think that's one thing that Barack Obama got right. He ran base elections. He knew that he needed his base to turn out to win. And especially in a cycle such as this, where you've got the factors of the coronavirus and who's going to show up to vote and how are they going to vote all up in the air. Is this election more of a base election where the messaging is targeted more to the supporters? Well, I certainly think every vote's going to count here. And uh, there are a lot of efforts that are out there uh, to motivate voters and to certainly reach into all of all of those special interest pockets of voters that are out there. And right now, I, I certainly think that the uh, Trump effort uh, is going a lot better than the Democrats' effort because uh, – Certainly, uh, a lot of the press coverage has indicated that the Democrats are, are 
uh, leaning so far left to the progressive side of things, and uh, a lot of time the emphasis, their public emphasis, is also leaning that way. And there's been a lot of theories as to why are they doing this? Why are they not reaching out to middle America and to, to grassroots America and all of those wonderful things that make up this nation? And uh, some people are saying it's because they're trying to uh, uh, bring attention off of Joe Biden and more on to the Bernie Sanders uh, region of the Democratic Party. So, uh, again, I think you're definitely right in terms of them forgetting about the independent or the undecided voters. So there's in some ways that division, almost civil war within the Democratic Party, is still going on beneath the beneath the surface, even though they're unified in their hatred of Donald Trump, they <laughs> still cannot come together over their policy goals and objectives. Is that why they're not talking so much about them? Well, I think that's a valid point there, Tony. It's very, very well put on your part. Uh, uh, to try to uh, encapsulate what they're trying to trying to get across here uh, on a national scale like this has always been a uh, a challenge to any of the previous conventions. But I think because of the uh, production of the four nights of this convention, it's been so complicated with lots of uh, fancy graphics, lots of uh, Zoom appearances and so forth, that the, the message truly has been got, has gotten lost. And uh, that's that's a dangerous way to be. And, and from what I can tell from the Trump uh, plans for the uh, convention plans for next week, uh, they're definitely going in a different direction. You know, I've I've had the uh, I was going to say the chance. I know I had to force myself to read the Democratic Party platform. And, mm-hmm. you know, this was a, this was a, a, a compromise product. It was something that Bernie Sanders, this is what brought him together with Joe Biden. And many of Bernie's people wrote the platform. And if you look through the platform, to me, it's why they're not talking about it. It is one of the most radical documents I have seen that talks about everything that's bad with America and really no solutions in terms of unless you want to call creating uh, more government and, uh, you know, and enabling unions to solve every problem in America. There's there's really there are no solutions contained in their platform. That's right. And. Essentially, that is what Americans are looking for right now. As you mentioned previously, they're alarmed by the the pandemic. They're alarmed by uh, their bank accounts, whether they're working or not, et cetera, et cetera. And and, uh, the Trump White House has certainly come up with a lot of very viable solutions to those things um, on the fly. I mean, everybody's concerned about this. And now should certainly be the time to um, really drill down and and find those messages that react on a visceral level with all Americans. And I have to tell you um, also, there's a great new poll out actually today from Rasmussen Reports, which talks about the effect of national political conventions on typical voters. And you got to think about much ado about nothing, because the poll reveals that only 19 percent of voters right now say that these conventions are going to influence them in any way uh, when they get in there in the polling booth. So it could be very expensive much ado about nothing, because the vast majority here in this poll, 74 percent, 
say they are not being swayed by these conventions. And uh, in my opinion, I think this could play into Donald Trump's hand because he he really is a master of uh, public appearances. He's got a sense of showmanship. He certainly is a master of the media based on uh, his experiences from uh, past years. So that's kind of the climate out there among the voters. Well, I'm I'm actually grateful for the conventions because it gives us something to talk about. Uh, maybe the voters aren't paying attention, but we're talking about it. Uh, Jennifer, very quickly, we're almost out of time, but what do the Republicans need to do next week in their convention? Well, I think uh, they're on the right track. They're definitely going to a much more kind of it seems like a cheerful, more traditional approach, even though it is only a virtual convention. Uh the uh, Mr. Trump will be giving his speech from the White House live. He has invited all of the House and Senate Republicans uh, to join him. They're going to have, this is according to uh, several press reports out today, they're also going to have live fireworks to follow from the Washington Monument. So that sense of uh, showmanship is definitely intact there. So they may have an edge. The president loves fireworks. He just loves the fireworks. Jennifer, <laughs> thanks so much for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Uh, Jennifer Harper with Washington Times, a great resource. You know, folks uh, ask me all the time, what's a source? Where do you get your news? Washington Times is one of those sources. So we're grateful uh, for their work over there. All right, coming up next, we'll talk about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi using the post office as a red herring in the debate over election integrity. We'll be talking with Dr. Mark Green, congressman from Tennessee, next about uh, Monday's hearing on the post office. Don't go away. We're back with more Washington Watch right after this. Christians have a biblical obligation to participate in government? Do Christians have a duty to vote? And if so, what principles should inform them while casting their ballots? How should pastors think about politics, and how can they shepherd their congregations well during an election season? The gospel of Jesus Christ has implications for all areas of our life, including politics. Christians must be prepared to grapple with the moral issues of our day, the reality of our two-party system, and follow our Christian convictions to their logical end by voting for candidates that support clear biblical values. Family Research Council has partnered with 21 state family policy councils for a new edition of Biblical Principles for Political Engagement. This booklet provides biblical wisdom and clear answers to pivotal questions to help you navigate the political landscape. This publication exists to facilitate careful thinking about issues and encourage God-honoring political engagement that filters all issues and candidates through a biblical worldview. To read the full publication, visit frc.org engage. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. Consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood, 
as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. You're listening to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, and the website is TonyPerkins.com. Again, let me remind you, coming up the end of September, September the 22nd through the 25th, the Values Voter Summit. That is the, that's really the convention for value voters, and uh, you can be a part of it. Go to TonyPerkins.com and follow the links over. Find out how you can register. Yesterday, here on Washington Watch, we had an in-depth program on universal mail-in balloting and the concerns and why. Uh, people should be concerned. And so the president has been raising those concerns. Uh, he also put uh, a businessman in charge of the post office to try to make it, um, you know, at least break even, quit losing money, uh, and become more efficient. Well, Monday, this coming Monday, there will be a hearing in the House uh, Oversight uh, Committee on the post office and mail-in voting. Now, this is, uh, in my view, this is uh, an attempt by Speaker Nancy Pelosi basically to turn the post office into what I call a red herring, uh, to, to turn people's attention away from the real problems surrounding this idea of universal mail-in balloting. It, it's not the post office. I mean, that's just a small component. It's actually the states having the infrastructure to get this done. But nonetheless, she's driving forward with this, and joining us now to talk more about it is a member of the House Oversight Committee. That will be in Monday's hearing. Uh, Congressman Mark Green, who represents the 7th Congressional District of uh, Tennessee. Um, Congressman, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks, Tony. Always uh, great to hear your voice and be on the show. Well, Dr. Green, you've been on this issue for some time. And uh, I am I accurate in saying that Nancy Pelosi is trying to shift the focus away from the real problem by bringing up the issue of the post office? You know, I don't... <sighs> I think it's more complex than just shifting away from what's the problems of the post office. I mean, there, she has a very political agenda with what she's doing. She, she wants to justify, um, mail-in, mail-in voting. And so what they have to do is to try to uh, create confidence in the postal service. They think that just, which is very typical of the way, you know, liberal progressives, their solution is always just adding more money 
but the post office has lost $69 billion in the past 11 years. Uh, they lost $8.8 billion last year. You don't fix something like that by just throwing more money at it. So this $25 billion, the conspiracy theorist portion of this kind of reveals where they're really going and that, you know, they're attacking the president uh, the, the the substantive changes that he wants to help make to reduce costs, streamline, make the place more efficient, um, you know, they they want to attack that as a conspiracy theory to block mail-in voting. Um, I, I I think that's ridiculous. This is this is just more politics from them, and and it's not about the postal service, and it's certainly not about the American people. So, uh, Congressman Green, hasn't the administration actually given uh, more money and even loaned money to or made money available to the post office to make sure that it continues to function? Sure. And they've done more, you know, both direct funding and even in the CARES Act, we had a significant amount of money set aside for the Postal Service. Interestingly enough, this year, because of the increased package deliveries secondary to the COVID uh 19 uh, changes to our economy. They, they increased their revenue $2.9 billion this year and won't need that money from the CARES Act until next fall. Yet Pelosi wants to dump, you know, operationally with cash on hand, et cetera. Um, but they want to dump $25 billion to, to backfill their, their, their past, um, you know, economic holes they've dug and, uh, it just it doesn't make a lot of sense at all. I mean, if you're running a business or if you've ever run a business, I mean, a lemonade stand, uh, you, you understand these basic principles and they don't get it. So, Congressman Green, uh, Monday's hearing, what areas or what what interest will you be pursuing? What what question, what line of questioning are you uh, going to be going after the on this hearing? We're still getting sort of the information on where the witnesses are and who, which, who the witnesses are. So some of that is still yet to be determined based on who actually sits as a witness. But, you know, my, my perspective is from, from a businessman. You know, I ran a healthcare company, and we had 1,000 employees. We were in 11 states, uh, 52 different hospitals. And, I mean, I, I want to go after the post office and say these are the, the structural fundamental problems with it. The things that the president did actually address those fundamental problems right, to make right. to make it a bet. So to assert that it is somehow, you know, an attack on mail-in ballots is ridiculous, and, and sort of come at it from that perspective. Um, that that's sort of my plan right now. When you look at this issue of the and the president has been very clear, he's he's not opposed to early voting. He's not opposed to absentee voting, where you would could in some cases, mail in your ballot. That's not the issue. The issue has been the universal, where everybody gets a ballot that's on the voting rolls. Um, and then you've got all these ballots floating out there. But in reality, this issue is more than just a post office. It's whether or not the states have the infrastructure set up to facilitate mail-in balloting. Yeah, what we're understanding right now is that the problem, and I believe there are 46 states that fall into this category, based on what we know about the current uh, metrics at the Postal Service, the dates and deadlines that are set in their election systems don't align with the metrics of performance from the Postal Service. So 46 states are going to have to 
basically come up with new timelines for their entire election system if they intend to do that. Um, and so, yes, it, there has to be changes both at the state election systems and you know, and then the whole concept of universal voting, you know, you, you have five people who lived in an apartment for the past 10 years and all five of those ballots go to the current recipient. That's right. That's the problem. And right. we know it happens. So it, you can't have confidence in the results from that kind of a, a mail out system. And those states like Washington and Oregon that have gone to all mail in uh, voting, they took almost a decade to make that transition, a lot more than just six weeks. So uh, that's, a very that's significant right. issue. Uh, yeah. Dr. Green, thanks so much for taking time to join us today. Thanks, Tony. Have a great day. You too. Congressman uh, Mark Green of uh, Tennessee. When we come back, the issue of racism in America. Uh, big issue. Can the government solve it? Who needs to tackle this issue? How do we move forward as a nation and put this behind us? Bishop Harry Jackson, my guest, next. Don't go away. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has released a new three-part series titled Three Ways to Read the Bible. In this series, Patrina Mosley, FRC's Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy, shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth through studying and applying the Bible's text. Now's the time to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible and learning what it says about God, humanity, and the power of Scripture. During this season of isolation, devote time to the Lord and seek out His meaning for you. In times of crisis and any time, this blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through His Word. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but your heart. To learn more, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website is TonyPerkins.com. All right, a lot of discussion about racism, uh, especially in the wake of the, uh, the tragic death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis. 
And, of course, that launched riots across the country. And, uh, I mean, a peaceful protest in some cases, but uh, there have been others that have come behind that and taken advantage of that into looting and lawlessness. Uh, but one of the things we hear is that this is about race and racial divide. In fact, the, the Democratic Party platform, which I'm going to be talking about uh, quite a bit in the coming weeks, is filled uh, with drawing attention to this uh, racial divide in our country. In fact, I would argue that they're furthering it by the way they talk about it, the way they approach it. Their only solution is uh, is dismantling government that they see as uh, a st- the, that uh, promotes systemic racism. But is there is there a cure? Is there an approach that might address this issue and move America forward? Uh, this is actually something that uh, my next guest and I wrote about in a book 15 years ago. It's still an issue, still yet to be resolved. Joining me now is Bishop Harry Jackson, who is out with a, another book, a new book, A Manifesto, Christian America's Contract with Minorities. Bishop Jackson, welcome back to Washington Watch. Tony Perkins, thank you so much for having me, and it's good to be back. Well, give me, uh, give our listeners kind of the... The reason, I mean, I know there's a, there's a lot out there, but what prompted you to write this book at this time? Well, I began to feel that tensions were rising, and uh, I started the book before George Floyd died, and I watched that uh, murder, if you will, myself, uh, on social media as others did. But... Since the time you and I co-authored the book, uh, Personal Faith, Public Policy, I had come to the belief that if there was a unified strategy and a healing attitude that the church embraced, that we could transform America and have revivals. And so the book essentially says, When America becomes a majority-minority country 20 years from now, what set of values are we going to follow? And essentially what we did 15 years ago and what I say now is here are a set of ideas and strategies that are biblically based that we can start working on. This book will help people uh, who are white, uh, understand and empathize with blacks, Hispanics, and Asians. It will also inform uh, the minority community what are biblical truths versus what are just socialistic uh, ploys to entrap people generationally. And uh, I believe a great awakening and a revival, Tony, is coming because of prayer. And I know you're a great man of prayer and public policy. And uh, so I wrote this book as a cry. Maybe it's a prophetic message to the nation saying, let's turn to Christ and then let's create an atmosphere in America of even more justice and even more blessing. Last thought, Tony. So why? are being blamed. That's all. Go ahead. So in essence, your book is Biblical Truth Matters if we want to solve the issue of racism in America. 
Exactly. That's really the only approach. We've been doing the best we think humanistically and uh, carnally, if you want to say it that way. And we've got ourselves in a mess and a hole that's going deeper. And hatred won't help us. So, yeah, yeah. let's go back to the Bible. Let me ask you a question, Bishop Jackson. You know, you and I have worked on this in a previous book. We've talked about it a lot. Uh, you, this has been a focus of your ministry. A lot of people would say, you know, is it really systemic? Is everything about America racist? I mean, think about it. We just had uh, our last president was uh, was an African-American. Uh, the uh, nominee as of last night of the Democratic Party for vice president uh, is, uh, is the fir- a first black female. So is the system completely uh, filled with racism? I don't think so. I think the word systemic is wrong, and we should say that there are some structural barriers, such like if you drop out of school early, you may get involved in drugs and crime, and that's what happens in poverty-controlled communities. And we could go into some of the hurdles. I think I'd rather talk about how can the church unify, get a strategy to take the least of these, disciple them, and then launch them into a values-driven, Christ-centered trajectory that will give them opportunity and thus heal the land. Uh, Bishop Jackson, we're up against a, a break. We're gonna, I'm going to have you back on. We're going to talk more about this. But in the meantime, how can people get a copy of your book? Well, they can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million. The books are everywhere. Pre-sales have been amazing. I think we answer questions and give history and background. All right. Uh, well, folks, get a copy of it. Bishop Jackson, great to have you on the program. We'll talk more about that in the coming uh, days. Folks, don't go away. We're back with more after this. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increased pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org sexuality. Again, that's frc.org sexuality. In today's culture, it can be difficult for men to navigate what it means to be a man and to find clear models of masculinity and manhood. There are many competing ideas out there and even confusion around the basic concepts of gender and sex. Where can boys, young men, husbands, and fathers find a model of manhood, leadership, and strength in today's culture of confusion? This is Tony Perkins inviting you to join me at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference led by men who are seasoned, compassionate leaders who understand the issues of the day. These issues 
will invest in unpacking our role as defenders, providers, instructors, and battle buddies so that men can have generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Join us at one of our upcoming events in Texas, Louisiana, Florida, or Virginia. Learn more about Stand Courageous and find an event near you at StandCourageous.com. That's StandCourageous.com. StandCourageous.com. With horrifying acceleration in recent years, verified reports of murders, rapes, mutilations, and kidnapping of Christians in Nigeria have persistently increased. These attacks are frequently accompanied by the torching of homes, churches, villages, and agricultural fields. A July 15, 2020 headline reports that over 1,000 Nigerian Christians were killed in the first six months of 2020. This is in addition to 11,000 Christians who have been killed since June 2015. News stories about the assaults in Nigeria are rarely reported in mainstream media outlets. But when they are, they're regularly explained away as effects of climate change, local feuds, or religious wars for which both sides bear equal responsibility. For more information about the persecution of Christians in Nigeria, read FRC's publication, The Crisis of Christian Persecution in Nigeria, at frc.org slash Nigeria. Welcome back. I'm Tony Perkins, your host, and you are listening to Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parlor, it's at T. Perkins. And uh, let me again remind you, coming up September the 22nd through the 25th, the Values Voters Summit, you can uh, be a part of the convention of Value Voters. Uh, register now. Go to TonyPerkins.com. Follow the links over. All right. The, uh, the DNC convention will be wrapping up tonight. We'll hear from uh, Joe Biden will be making his acceptance speech. But last night, Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris from the state of California, uh, accepted the nomination as vice president on the Democratic ticket. So what do we know? What do we know about Kamala Harris, about her record? Right? We want to talk about policies. I've been, you, you hear me talking about that all the time. Where are the policy discussions? Now, obviously, we are a public policy organization. Uh, I mean, I focus heavily on policy. I mean, it's, it's what I did when I was in office. It's what we do here because the policy matters. You know, words are one thing, you know, these speeches and the rhetoric, but it's the policies. And that's why, again, you know, when I point to what this administration has done, it's quite impressive in terms of the policies that you and I care about. In fact, I'm going to put this out there again. If you would like to get a list, the latest list, now you may have gotten this a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, it changes constantly because the administration continues to push forward with pro-family, pro-life policy. So if you'd like to get a copy, text me 51555. That's 51555, the word actions, actions, it's plural, and I'll send you a link, and, it'll, and you'll get this uh, link to a PDF that you can look at on your phone, on your computer. You can put it on social media. You can share it with your friends. But it shows you, not commentary, but date and uh, time at which the administration pushed forward policies that protected life, religious freedom, uh, and the values that you and I care about. And know that if America is going to be great, it's got to be first, it's got to be good. 
And these are the type of policies that lend itself toward that. So I want to look at Kamala Harris and her policies. Now, let me just start with this. According to uh, GovTrack.us, she has been rated as the most liberal member of the United States Senate. Now, keep in mind that Bernie Sanders is in the Senate, too. She is to the left of Bernie Sanders. Now, that's not coming from me. That's coming from apparently this uh, nonpartisan group called GovTrack that has this criteria that they look at members, how effective they are. She has introduced more legislation than most. I think she's like second most um, that has introduced legislation, and she's only gotten one bill passed, and it was to commemorate... um, uh, a dam in California or something. So, I mean, in terms of effectiveness, um, not quite there. But let's look at some of the other policies. Now, before she came to the Senate, she was Attorney General of the state of California. And so she's got a record, a public record. You know, I'm not going to get into any of the, um, you know, the personality aspects. There's plenty there, but I'm not going to go there. I'm going to focus just on her policies. In fact, I would encourage you, as we move toward Election Day and your conversations with people, you know, they're going to say, and even some of your family and friends that might not like the tweets of Donald Trump and so on and so forth. Look, this is not about personality. And if they want to have a personality conversation, you know, l- let them have it. But turn it over to the policies. That's where we see the contrast. And those are the things that really matter when it comes to the laws that we're going to be living under. Joining me now to uh, to talk more about this in terms of the record of Kamala Harris is uh, David Clausen. He's the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview here at the Family Research Council. David, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to be back, Tony. Now, uh, you've heard me uh, give some analysis of the convention this week, and every night, absent is policy discussion. First, the exception being the first night Bernie Sanders said something about, you know, we thought our you thought our campaign was over it had and it's still going. And, you know, he's the only one that made a kind of a oblique reference to to policy. But we also have a clip from Kamala Harris from last night, uh, which gives some insight into her policy. So, Bobby, play that clip for us. And while this virus touches us all, we got to be honest, it is not an equal opportunity offender. Black, Latino, and indigenous people are suffering and dying disproportionately. And this is not a coincidence. It is the effect of structural racism, of inequities in education and technology, health care and housing, job security and transportation, the injustice in reproductive and maternal health care, in the excessive use of force by police, and in our broader criminal justice system. Now, there is a lot there, some buzzwords uh, there, reproductive health care. Let's just start with that one issue of uh, of abortion. And, you know, she's got a pretty lengthy track record surrounding that issue. 
She does, Tony. And already before she was even named to the ticket, the Joe Biden was running, I think, on one of the most extreme platforms we've ever seen when it comes to the abortion issue. But adding Kamala Harris to the ticket really – we now have the – in the Biden-Harris ticket, I think we have the Planned Parenthood dream ticket. And just looking at Kamala Harris's record on this issue, let's look back at her tenure as attorney general of the state of California. If many of our listeners remember when David Daleiden in the Center for Medical Progress did those videos that proved that Planned Parenthood was selling baby body parts. And once those videos came to light, rather than investigate Planned Parenthood, what did Kamala Harris do? She went after David Delight and she raided his home uh, since and because, you know, Planned Parenthood is one of the biggest contributors to her campaign. But since joining the United States Senate, uh, she has amassed quite a record. Let, let, let me add one additional factor when she was uh, California Attorney General is that the uh, essentially the provision that went all the way to the Supreme Court that required crisis pregnancy centers to uh, basically give a message that, hey, uh, we don't do abortion, but there's an abortion you can get for free down the street. Um, they had to post those signs yes. in their clinics, and they also tried to shut down uh, some yes. of these clinics, and she was attorney general. In fact, she was uh, one of the uh, the plaintiffs uh, or defendants yep. in the Supreme Court in the case that uh, Nefla uh, made against the state of California. Yes, so a case that she lost right. at, at the Supreme Court. Yeah, she was not she was not Attorney General when it made it to the Supreme Court. Right, but she was an original uh, defendant in the case yes. in that suit. Yeah, that's right. And really, Tony, since uh, joining the United States Senate when she took office in 2017, she's had the opportunity to vote on several uh, common sense. Uh, legislation that has garnered bipartisan support, but she has voted against every single one of those bills, and just a couple of them. Uh, in 2017, she voted against an amendment to stop Obamacare's taxpayer funding for abortion. 2018, she voted against the pain-capable Unborn Child Protection Act, which would make it illegal to perform an abortion uh, in the fifth month of pregnancy when a baby can feel pain. Uh, in 2018, she voted against an amendment to stop funding for Planned Parenthood. In 2019, she voted against the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act, which would have codified the Hyde Amendment. Uh, then uh, in 2019, she voted against the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, uh, which would have provided protections for babies who survive a botched abortion. And just this year, not that many months ago, she once again, in the same day, voted against the pain-capable Unborn Child Protection Act uh, introduced by Lindsey Graham, and then again voted against the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act uh, introduced by Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska. So again, and both of those bills had Democrats that voted for them, because again, this is, you know, we, you and I both say this all the time, Tony, abortion is not an issue of right or uh, left, it's an issue of right or wrong when it comes to morality. And yet every chance that Kamala Harris has had to be on the right side of the life issue, she's gone against it. Let me talk a little bit about the uh, – I want to make sure I'm, – I'm, I'm choosing my words very carefully here. Um, and again, I want to stay there, – there's so many things I could say, but I, I'm going to stay focused on the policies. And to do that, I, I want you to bring up one of the other policies that she actually introduced – when she voted against trying to uh, uh, voted against a measure, actually, she voted against just allowing debate on the bill that would require that health care, that life-sustaining care, be given to babies who survive abortion. She voted against even having a debate yes. on that. 
But then she turned around and she introduced another bill. What was it? Yeah, so this was actually just two weeks before she took that vote on the Born Alive Survivor Protection Act, and it was uh, legislation she introduced uh, called the HART Act, uh, which was legislation that – HART, as in – HART, like our, our heart, yeah, okay. H-E-A-R-T. Um, so is that, was that a – I mean, was that a compassionate pro-life piece of legislation? It was a compassionate pro-life piece of legislation for dogs. And, and so what the legislation was is that for dogs that the uh, federal officials take uh, – if, if you know, there's a dog fighting that's going on. Um, and, Which, by the way, I'm opposed to dog fighting. Oh, of course. Okay. Just but, so the record's <laughs> clear. But the, the legislation was uh, to try to protect abused animals. And in fact, when she introduced the legislation the, the, on the floor of the Senate, she said, you know, dog fighting is despicable. These animals bring us so much joy, and we can and do so much more for the survivors of dog fighting to help them find their forever homes, is the language she used. So, you know, probably good legislation to protect these abused animals. But two weeks later, Tony, she went on the same floor of the United States Senate and, like you just said, voted against even having a debate to protect babies who survive botched abortions. So that the it's not just a, a situation of misplaced priorities. It's a, an entire moral uh, switch, a moral inversion that's taking place. And that's her record. But where you elevate animals above the value of human beings. Now... For the record, um, you know, I would I would have probably voted for her bill, okay? Uh, and that's just where, I, you know, it, it, it's not something I would probably introduce myself and run, you know, because it's, there's so many other things to focus on. But if that bill was forward, you know, I, how I would approach it is say, Kamala, look, I support your bill, but I tell you what, I'll vote for your bill. Will you vote for my bill that would protect babies who were born alive? So that we maintain a sense of civility as a as a as a as a culture, and not move into this barbaric realm to where we let babies die yeah. who survive an attempt on their life. So I think, I think the contrast is is quite clear, and in in informative. Now she also, I think she's pretty. Uh, well, first off, she's very smart. Okay, so I'm not gonna. I, I've watched her. I think she's very smart. Uh, she's also uh, very politically astute. One of the things she did, she's on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and uh, she was very careful in the way that she went after judicial nominees for their religious beliefs. Uh, she didn't do it on camera. Uh, she did it mainly in the questions that they file with these uh, nominees. But nonetheless, she has made an issue about orthodox religious affiliation of judicial nominees. She did, Tony, and this happened in 2018 for uh, an appointment to a district court, uh, and she actually asked specific questions to one of President Trump's nominees who did ultimately get confirmed about his membership in the Knights of Columbus, which is a Catholic charity organization. And she specifically asked him if he was aware of the positions of the Knights of Columbus on abortion and marriage, which, of course, is a Catholic organization. They hold to the views that the Catholic Church has had on these you know, issues for hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet really implied that because of his views, because of his association and the way he thought about marriage, which is the way Christians have thought about this for 2,000 years, he was unfit for being on the federal bench. So it was a real demonstration of animus against people of faith who have uh, convictions uh, informed by Scripture on life and marriage. 
Now, David, we're not going to have time to unpack this next question, but I want to put it out there because it was a question I got uh, just today from a reporter that, that called me, and, and I gave him a lengthy answer. But uh, And we're going to unpack this in the, the days, in the weeks to come. But there's an effort on behalf of Biden and Harris ticket to go after evangelical voters. On what grounds would a Bible-believing Christian vote for them? I can't think of one, Tony, and you're right. They're going at, there's the whole Biden campaign has the Believers for Biden campaign. Uh, but the problem is that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are running on a ticket uh, of principles that are odious to the basic tenets of Christian uh, morality and Christ, the Christian faith. And so I think that's going to be a very hard sell for them to make. They're, they're making it, and therefore I think uh, pastors especially uh, need to be very clear in teaching their congregations how to think about these issues and where the major parties stand on them. I mean, my response basically, you know, they say, well, you know, Donald Trump doesn't talk about his faith. He doesn't, like Joe Biden talks about him being Catholic. He goes to church. Donald Trump doesn't, doesn't talk about his faith. No, but what his policies do are make it, make it possible for me and other Christians to live according to their faith in America where the policies that the Democratic Party has put forth in their own words, in their own platform, would make it difficult. Absolutely, and so that's what we need to do. Look at the policies, look at the platforms, and and look what these two uh, political parties are putting forward. And I think Christians have to be wise and discerning. Uh, And when you do that, you'll see a clear difference. David Clawson, thanks so much for joining us. I know we're going to have many conversations in the days ahead about these very issues of uh, policies being put forth by the various parties. Thank you so much, Tony. Folks, thank you for joining us, and I do encourage you to stay tuned uh, for more as uh, we get deeper into this election cycle. Uh, Make sure you're registered. Make sure you plan to vote. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.